Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. See, he was saying that the Hebrew letters are actually the building blocks of creation. The life force, the divine life force that flows to the stone flows from the ten utterances. It says God created the world. God said and it should come into existence. It's God's speech that brought it into existence that brings it into existence. It's the letters, the letters, the shape of the letters. The letter is, channels a certain divine energy. Each letter has its own unique flavor, its own unique energy, and a different combination of the letters create the different entities. And although the ten utterances only mention ten things, but the truth is that from these letters, contained within these letters, are the letters of everything that exists. For example, the, the Hebrew word for stone, evan. The word evan is found in these letters, either directly or indirectly by way of, of um, substituting the alphabet, by way of numerical value, by way of the 231 gates, which we discussed last week. Um, each of these different combinations creates and substitutes the letters. You'll find every possible conceivable combination of letters, all the Hebrew names for all of the objects, all objects that exist. And just like that's true with this stone, he continues in the bottom of 840. And so it is with all created things in the world. The holy tongue, the Hebrew of the Torah, was the language used in creation. Thus, all created things are directly affected by their Hebrew names, as well as by the component letters of their names. In this, the holy tongue is unlike other arbitrary languages, the meaning of whose words is the result of mere consensus. Okay, all languages are basically man-made. We got together. The dictionary is man-made. We got together. We decided we're going to call this table, we're going to call this uh, plate, we're going to call this napkin. There's no connection between napkin, the sound of the napkin, the letters N-A-P-K-I-N with a napkin. No, we could have decided to call this napkin and this table. Language is man-made and it's constantly changing. And in language, all languages, the object precedes the name. First you have the object and then... In order to communicate, we have to create a consensus. If you want to be able to communicate, we all have to decide we're going to call this cup and this plate. Otherwise, you'll have confusion. So it's all man-made. And it comes after the fact. After the, the world is created, we call this, this each object, we, we designate a name for each object. The Hebrew language is different, however. The Hebrew language, the name is connected to the object. And therefore, the name precedes the object. The Torah says, God said there should be light, and then there was light. The name, or, in Hebrew, for light, it pre-exists light. It creates the light. It generates the light. It creates the special quality that's called light, with all the special qualities that have to do with light, and laser and light. It's all there, it's all in the name, or. And the aleph, and the vav, and the resh of light, channels that divine energy that creates this special entity which is, called, which is light. And the same is with heaven, rakia, and the same is with all the names. And, um, and that's why we find in the Torah, right in the beginning, that the Torah tells us about uh, uh, Adam's wisdom, that Adam named all the animals of the world. God paraded all the animals before Adam, and he called them by their name. And the Midrash fills in the blanks. The Midrash says that the angels complained to God he says, why are you wasting your time with man? What's man? Man is full of folly. Man 
is ridiculous and absurd creature. Why are you wasting your time? You should spend your time with us. You should focus on us. We're perfect. We're angels. And God says, I will show you that Adam's wisdom is superior to your wisdom. And he paraded all the animals before the angels and he says, please name these animals. And they couldn't. He paraded them before Adam and Adam named them. This is a shor, this is an axe, this is a chamor, this is a donkey. Naming all the Hebrew names from the animals. This is a dove, a beer, a nachash, a snake, etc. It's a very puzzling midrash. Where's the brilliance? Where's Adam's brilliance? Why couldn't the angels? Angels are brilliant Pure minds, pure intellect. Why couldn't the angels, if we can create a dictionary, the angels can create a dictionary. They could have easily just decided we're going to call this a shor and call this a chamar. Where do you see the brilliance of Adam? And the brilliance of Adam was that Adam was able to look at the physical axe, at the physical lion, with its nature and its, and its abilities and its tendencies and he was able to see its source he was able to see the divine energy that's channeling that's creating the axe with its unique characteristics facial characteristics nature inner characteristics he was able to see and therefore he called it shar shar wasn't arbitrary or the axe it wasn't it wasn't just arbitrary he was able to see the divine energy that's creating the axe, and therefore he was able to say, this is a shin, this is a vav, this is a resh, this is, these are the letters, and the combination of these three letters, and its unique combination, that creates this mix, it's like a mix of the right atoms, a mix of the right chemicals, this is what creates, and gives us this short. So, this was Adam's unique ability, that he was able to see in the physical axe, he was able to see its source, able to see its divine source, its divine origin, its divine energy, it's continued constantly creating and bringing into existence, bringing this axe into existence and creating the nature of the axe. And the same is with all the animals. So a name, a Hebrew name, is very special. That's why when parents name a child, your Hebrew name is very special. The Jewish people in Egypt, one of the reasons they were exiled is in the, in the merit of four things. They did not change their name. They did not change their Hebrew name. That's why the book of Exodus begins this week. These are the names of the Jewish people who descended into Egypt. Although these names were already mentioned when they descended into Egypt at the end of Genesis, the Torah repeats it to us because the Torah tells us they did not change the name. Even when they were in Egypt, they did not adopt Egyptian names. They didn't assimilate. They kept their Hebrew names, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, etc. Because the Hebrew name is very special. It's not like Felix, Frank, Maria. That, that's, these, names, these names are meaningless. I mean, it has no connection. It's arbitrary. But the Hebrew name is connected to your soul. Your whole life story is in your name. And when parents give a child a name, there is like a divine inspiration. It's like a mini prophecy. How do parents know to give this name to this child, this Hebrew name? It is literally a, a prophecy. Sometimes some people would ask the Rebbe to choose a name for the children. And the Rebbe said, no. This is a prophecy that's given to parents. God puts into your head the right name for this person, their personality. And you have names which are totally opposites. Gavriel, Gavriel is strength. Gavriel is intensity, ferociousness. It's a different quality. A person who's called Gavriel has a certain tendency that fits his soul. That's his soul. That's his name. That's the key to his soul. 
And we see that a name has tremendous power. When a person <coughs> faints, when a person faints, you whisper his name in his ear and it could revive him because he hears his name. A name touches, pulls very delicate strings. We know how precious a name is to a person. Any name. You know, like the cocktail effect. You could be in a room with a thousand people. You could be at the other end of the room. The music is blearing. Everyone is shouting. Someone calls your name. You're the only one in the room who hears it, but you hear it. Because your name is very precious. But especially your Hebrew name. Because your Hebrew name really expresses your soul, expresses your essence. So the, in Hebrew, a name of an object, like the name of the Torah portion, it's not just arbitrary. It's not, well, we need to call the Torah portion, we need to call a name, we need to give a name, so let's take the first letter, the first word of the Torah portion and call it by its name. We see the Rebbe brings an interesting proof. We see it's not so. What's the name of the first Torah portion? Bereshit. That's the first word. Okay, so you say, maybe they took the first word and they said, Bereshit, at the beginning. But then you go to the second Torah portion. What's the name of the second Torah portion? Noah. No, uh, not, not the Chumash, the Torah portion in, in, in Bereshit, in Genesis. Noah, Noah. But the word, the first word in the Torah portion is Vi'ela Toldos Noah. These are the children of Noah. If you're looking for the first word, it should be called Vi'ela. Or it should be called Toldos. There actually is a Torah portion in Genesis that's called Toldos. Ve'ela told us Yitzchak. So if you're going to, maybe you didn't want to call it Ve'ela, because Ve'ela is only a connecting word, and these are. But call it told us. As a matter of fact, the first Torah portion should have been called told us, the second word. By the time you get to Ve'ela told us Yitzchak, you already took told us, because that was already the name of the second Torah portion. You should have given that Yitzchak. That should have been called Yitzchak. Instead, the first time, the first Torah portion, you skip the first two words, and you go to, straight to the third word. And you call it Noah. Interestingly, there's no Torah portion named after Avraham. There's no Torah portion named after Yitzchak. No, no Torah portion named after Yaakov. You name a Torah portion on a non-Jew, on Noah. If anything, logically it would make sense that the third, that Toldos should be called Yitzchak and let the second Torah portion be called Toldos. So you see, a name is not arbitrary. We didn't just choose a name. The rabbis didn't just go and say, okay, the first word, we'll call it Vi'ela, we'll call it Toldos, just to designate a name. No, it's like naming a baby. It's like naming a child. Anything in Hebrew, any name in Hebrew, there's a special connection to that name. That name is connected, is inherently connected to the object who's, which is named. Noach expresses the theme, the essence of that Torah portion. And Lech Lecha, and the same of each and every Torah portion. Every portion of the Torah portion of Lech Lecha expresses the theme of Lech Lecha, moving and movement. Sarah, the life of Sarah, although the whole Torah portion talks about the death of Sarah, the passing of Sarah, and seemingly unrelated events which resulted after her death, but really the name is Chayi Sarah. Everything in that Torah portion expresses the life of Sarah because a name is connected, it has an inherent connection. It's not arbitrary. It's not superficial. It's not external. It's inner. It's an inherent, innate connection between the name and the object. Why? Why is the name so connected? Because the name creates the object. The Hebrew name creates the object. The he- your Hebrew name creates you. 
Your Hebrew name creates is the divine channel. Those Hebrew words and letters are the divine channel of the divine energy that creates your unique personality. There never was anyone like you, there never will be. Because your unique name is the divine channel that creates you. Therefore, there has to be an inner, inherent, innate connection between the object and the name. It's not magical, oh, the name happens to be connected. Because the name is the, it vivifies you. The name creates you and the name sustains you. So the Hebrew name is inherently connected with every part of the object that's given that name. Well, many times if people would come to the Rebbe in the many, many cases, especially in today's generation, they were never given a Hebrew name. So the Rebbe would advise them because they were given a name by the parents. It was an English name or a French name, whatever name it was. So the Rebbe said, following the principle that when parents give a name, it's by divine inspiration. To find a Hebrew name that matches, that's closest, closest sounding to the English name that you were given, or this, uh, the non-Jewish name that you were given. Because that's how, that's the closest we can get, that's where the prophecy expresses itself, that there was a Hebrew name that's close sounding to the name that you were given. That's your name. That's your unique name. That's your signature. That's your unique name. And your whole life story is in that name. There are books that do that. Those, you, can, you can rely on those, those books that do that? Where they change, they take the English name and they, they match it with the Hebrew name? I think what those books do is that when many, you know, two, three generations ago, people gave both names. They would give a Hebrew and they give an English. So they're just trying to figure out from the English name, like Max is Moshe, Mardukai, or trying to figure out Paul. There was probably a correlation. Most people, so you can figure out from one, you can figure out what the Hebrew name was. That was a generation where they actually gave, where they actually gave both names. Today we're talking about a generation that were only given one name. They were never given a Hebrew name. So... There, it's not necessarily, it's not always the case that the English and the Hebrew match. It just happens to be that the Pauls were usually, uh, you know, whatever. Whatever it was, I'm, I'm not fam totally familiar with it. uh, particulars. Um, but here, the Rebbe would make a point of trying to find the connection between... What about if it's a Hebrew name that's not biblically inspired? Or maybe all Hebrew names are. You have many names that are given which are not... No, they're not names, they're not like, you know, Moshe, they're more like... But they're all derivative, they're all derivative of Hebrew, yeah. derivative of Torah. It, it is derivative, it has a meaning. There is a derivative of some Hebrew, of some original, of some... Uh, I didn't have a Hebrew name until somebody in Lubavitch named gave you. me a name. Okay, so once you're given a name, that's, that's your name, it's your choice. What about an English name is spelled out in Hebrew? Is what? That a derivative of something? You take my name. It's, you know, Beit, Resh, Vav, Samach. No, no, that means no. That's, that's not, that doesn't, that wouldn't, work. that wouldn't work. But there are many Yiddish names. There are many Yiddish names, which, most cases, people have Yiddish names. It's a combination of Yiddish and English, like uh, Dov, Ber. Dov is a beer. Ber is the Yiddish translation. Zev, Wolf. Zev is a wolf. Wolf is the wolf in Yiddish. But there are times where they only have a Yiddish name, a Musya, Mushka, it's even a Russian name, but that became a Jewish name. Um, Adl, the Balshamtev's daughter, Adl, it's, it's, it's like a Yiddish name. Is in the, in the Torah? No, 
Menachem is Mendel not. No, no. Menachem is Mendel not. But it's, that's a combination of a Hebrew, of Hebrew. But today Mendel is his Jewish name. Yeah. There is. Right. Yes. Exactly. So once once it already becomes a Jewish name and becomes part of the Jewish language, then again it it, it has that same quality. Um, there's a beautiful story that's told with the with Nachmanides. Nachmanides had a student, one of his prize students, who took a left turn and became a convert to Christianity. This goes back like uh, eight, nine hundred years ago. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, seven, eight hundred years ago. And once his teacher, Nachmanides, meets him on Yom Kippur, and in front of his Rebbe, he took a piece of pig ham on Yom Kippur with cheese, and he ate it. And he asked his Rebbe, how many violations have I just violated? How many, because he was a brilliant mind, a brilliant legal scholar. How many krisus, how many of the most severest penalties have I just violated? Yom Kippur, not kosher, milk and meat, you know. And the Rebbe said four, and he said five. It was a whole argument. Nachmanides was shocked. He said, how is it possible? How could you have, how could you have gone so far? He was his prized student. The student's name was Avner. So he says, Rebbe, I'll tell you the truth. I once heard you say, I once heard you tell us that every Jew, every Jewish name is included in the song of Hazinu, which is the second to last Torah portion. Every single Jew is mentioned in that song. And when I heard this, I said, you know, Anyone who can believe this can believe anything. This is, this is so absurd. I don't believe this. And just like this is a lie, everything else my Rebbe taught me, everything the Torah is teaching me, it's just a... I don't believe it anymore. I just can't believe it. So I lost my faith. Ahmadis looks at him and he says, but it's true. So he says, Rebbe, tell me, tell me where you find my name in the song of Hazina. So Nachmanides closes his eyes, went to a corner, closed his eyes, and he came back. And he pointed out, he said, in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, the 26th verse, says, Amarti Afeyem, Hashem says, I will throw them away, I will discard them, or I will get angry at them. Ashbisa I will destroy from people's zikram, their memory. I will erase their memory from people. He says, take the third letter of every word in this verse. This is the entire passage, the entire verse, verse 26. I will, I will get angry at them. I will erase from people's zikram, their memory. Take the third letter of every word in this verse, and it spells resh, rebi, Aleph, Beis, Nun, Resh, Rab Avner. When Rabbi Avner heard this, he was like stunned. He says, Rabbi, could I do Teshuvah? <laughs> could I come back? What's going to be? The Rabbi said, 
look what the verse says. They will be erased from memory. It says Rabbi Avner took it to heart. He sold everything he had. He bought himself a boat. He went sailing solo and no one ever heard from him ever again. His memory was erased. And the Rebbe once pointed out, the most astonishing part of the story is that what is the first letter in the first verse? The first letter of this combination is Resh, Rabbi, Rabbi Avner. The Torah is addressing a convert to Christianity. Someone who was at the peak and fell to the abyss. While he's a convert, what's the, how's the Torah referring to him? Is Rabbi Avner. Because a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Deep down, even a self-hating Jew, even a Jew who's so lost, so alienated, so hostile, so far from his own core, his own essence, his own roots, Deep down, he remains a rabbi. That's his first letter. That's his essence. You're a rabbi. You're a Jew. Rabbi Avner. So a Jewish name, a Hebrew name, is not arbitrary. Every name, every letter, every name is in the Torah. And every Jew has a unique, unique mission to fulfill. Let's continue in 841. The names of all creatures in the holy tongue are the very letters of speech which descend degree by degree from the ten utterances recorded in the Torah. So the names are actually the letters. The names are actually the, the life force itself, which are derived from the ten utterances until you get the combination, the name, the Hebrew name for this object. By means of substitutions and transpositions of letters through the 231 gates, until they reach a particular created thing and become invested in it, thereby giving it life. This descent is necessary because individual creatures, unlike the more pervasive beings, such as the heavens, earth, sun, and moon, cannot receive their life force directly from the actual ten utterances recorded in the Torah. Okay, so he's, he's trying to explain why is it then that the Torah only gives us ten utterances. If every single thing that exists in this world, which has its own name, its own, its own unique name, of course, there's a difference between, let's say, animals and people. Animals, only, the only name you give to an animal is the species. Every individual animal does not have its own name. You're not going to call every goldfish doesn't have its own name. You know, this is a so barrel or yanko. <laughs> a species, a species has a name. A human being is not so. A human being, every human being has a name. A human being is unique. Because every human being has its own unique personality is, is really different, is a world apart. While not, you're not going to call every blade of grass its own name. Every animal, you're not going to call its own name. Every fish, you're not going to call its, its own name. It doesn't really have a name. People call names because, you know, you want to play around. But it's not real. A human being has a name. But why, if everything in the world has, every object has a name, Every creature has a name. Every species has a name. Every human being. Why did God only utter ten utterances? He only uttered, so he's explaining, because he only uttered the main, the major items. Heavens, earth, sun, moon, the huge items. The, the general items. And because they receive the life force directly from the ten command, the ten utterances. Because they're able to receive a, a powerful, powerful influx of divine energy. 
for the life force issuing directly from them is far greater than the capacity of the individual creatures, i.e. it is far too intense to serve as their life force. Right, it cannot come direct. The, the life force of the stone and the life force of all of these objects cannot come directly from, from the uh, ten utterances because it, it, it's too intense. It has to be concealed. It has to go through many transmutations and substitutions. Each time when a letter is transmuted and a letter is substituted, or you get the numerical value of the letter, what it means is you're getting like a, like a pale reflection of the letter, of the original letter. You're getting an energy, but like a, 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 a slight, a very condensed version of that energy. Just like you can't look at the sun. It's too intense. But if you put many screens in front of you, then you can look at the sun because what you're getting is you're just getting a pale reflection of, 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 of the ray, of the sunlight. That you can handle. So the, the, the smaller the object, the smaller, it cannot receive directly. It can't receive the energy directly. It's too intense. It has to go through many screenings and many processes, and then, only then, could it receive a glimpse a rim, a, uh, of a ray um, and that it can handle and that, that it, could, it could contain. Because the stone has no life in it almost. You don't see any life in it. Unlike the, the sun and the moon and the, the heavens and the stars, that, that you see a powerful, mighty, divine life force. The stone is, is dead. You don't even see any life force. So in order for the stone to remain a stone, that the life force in the stone should be so concealed that the, the stone could sit there for thousands of years and not budge and not move, um, the, the life force, the energy, has to be concealed and condensed. And, and that's, that's the meaning. When you say the Hebrew letters is changed and transmuted and substituted, that means it goes through many, many screens. The original energy, it's the same original energy, but it comes through many, many layers and screens. By the time it gets to the stone, there's only a, a glimpse of that light, a glimpse of that energy, just enough to sustain the stone and to animate and to keep the stone in existence. And therefore, it can, it can create a stone with a very tiny, finite, minute level of energy. We do that with electrical power. When it's, when it's produced, it's, it's much greater than when it reaches the, you know, the outlet. That's a very interesting analogy. So something huge can receive the energy direct without any, without any intermediaries. But if to get from that huge uh, generator, to get electricity from <laughs> without, without, without being shorted... You know, we know how important it is to get, you have to get all these, um, what's it called, uh, protect, protect your computers, otherwise your computer can get shorted. You get a power surge, you get a surge of electricity and you can't handle it and it's all over. To get that minute energy, so you have to, you have to reduce it and you have to limit it. That's a good analogy. So when you say the, the numerical, the gematria, the numerical value, the substitution, the substitute, the Hebrew alphabet, um, the, the 231 gates, this changing of the letters, meaning it's, it, it derives from the original letter, from the original ten utterances, but by the time it gets to the stone, it went through, like you say, many circles and many changes until you only get a glimpse, a tiny bit of that energy, enough to create this tiny object. They can receive the life force only when it descends and is progressively diminished degree by degree by means of substitutions and transpositions of the letters and by means of gematria, their numerical values. The life force may be so muted that it reaches a created being not even through a transposition of letters, 
but merely through their num numerical equivalent. Which is even further removed from the original energy. When you substitute one letter to, for the next, it's also pretty much removed. It's like taking letters that are coherent and suddenly scrambling the letters. Scrambling all the letters, and what do you get? The, the whole inner meaning is lost. The original meaning is lost. Which is how, although everything was created by the divine energy, how do you end up with something that's prohibited? Something, an object which is not kosher. How can something, how can something divine, Hebrew letters, divine energy, create something that's not kosher? Everything must have letters. Everything must have a divine energy. Otherwise, it couldn't exist. It couldn't be sustained. So how could the divine energy create and sustain something that's the opposite of divine, the opposite of holiness, something that's not kosher? Because the letters, it's like letters that are coherent, that have a meaning. And suddenly you take the letters and you scramble them all up. It becomes a puzzle, a meaningless puzzle. You have no idea. It's, 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 it's all encrypted. I have no idea what it means. It's hidden. The original meaning is totally hidden and concealed. And it's confused. And it's distorted. That's, that describes, that aptly describes the world we live in. Everything originates in the Hebrew, in the divine energy. But in its origin, the letters are clear and sequent. Everything is clear. Everything is crystal clear. You sense the divine origin. You sense godliness. But then the letters became all scrambled. And life became one big mystery, one big puzzle, one big encryption. And our mission in life is we are the code breakers. You have to find, put the letters back together. Reconnect everything back to its source. Suddenly, it's like everything is blurry, everything is confused, and we have to put everything back into focus. The mission of a Jew is to put everything back into focus. Put the letters back in sequence, where suddenly everything becomes coherent again. Everything becomes crystal clear. The original message, the original, the original message becomes clear, emerges very clearly. And the, the greater the confusion the greater the level of darkness, till you reach a level where you actually have an object that's not kosher, something that's the opposite, that's so distant from godliness that, it, that it's actually the antithesis of godliness because the letters are so scrambled. It has letters, but it's scrambled. What do you mean scrambled? That you, I mean, that's how we try to... If you take, letters, if you take letters and you scramble, suddenly it becomes meaningless. The original meaning is totally concealed. When you look at an object that's not kosher, not only don't you see godliness, you see the opposite of godliness. You see arrogance. You see a predatory animal that's aggressive. You see tendencies that are the exact opposite of rahmanness, of compassion, of goodness. The exact opposite of its origin, which is divine. In a domesticated animal, over there the letters are also scrambled, but they're not so scrambled. At least it's kosher. At least it has the potential to be elevated. It's domesticated, it has kosher tendencies, kosher qualities, it's not a predatory animal, there's a certain goodness that, that could penetrate, and therefore it has the ability, it's easier to scramble the letters. But sometimes the, it's so, the letters are so well scrambled that the Torah says it's off limits. You don't have the power to, to decode the message or to, because it's, it's too scrambled. You have to be someone very powerful. They have to call in the biggest expert to be able to decipher the enemy, enemy language. You have to be able to call in the biggest expert to be able to, to, um, to work through the encryption. That's the power of a baltruva, the power of teshuva. They are able even to, even those scrambled letters, 
where something is not kosher, something you can even take that and reconnect it back to its source. But that's something unusual. That's the power of the shuva. But on, on average, the Torah says this is off limits, you can't deal with it because it's too concealed. The original divine energy is too hidden, it's too concealed, and you can't find it, and you're not going to find it, and you're not going to see it. You can't help it, you can't release it. The way to help it is by removing it. The way to help it is by avoiding it. By calling it not kosher. Calling a spade a spade. Objecting to it. Seeing it as objectionable. That's how you, that's how you deal with it. That's how you elevate its spark. But everything must have letters. Everything must have a divine energy. Everything has divine letters. Otherwise it couldn't exist. So the pig wasn't named by Adam? Yes, it was named by Adam. But in the letters of the pig, you also have the, the qualities of the pig, which has one kosher sign and one not kosher sign. The pig puts up a good front. It shows you its kosher signs. The pig is, not in, is, is inside, is, does not match his outside. On the outside, he's kosher. He's split hoof. But on the inside, he doesn't choose God. He's the only animal. That's why he's very deceptive. That's why the Western, the Western world is compared to the to the pig. On the surface, it's beauty, art, everything is beautiful. But inside, inside, it can be all corrupt, arrogant. It's all very skin deep. It puts up a nice front, beautiful. But inside, it could be it's not it's not genuine. Why does it matter if the chew is its cut? I know that that's what makes a kosher animal, but what's the significance? Well, the yeah, sure. The significance of chewing its cud is that they, a Jew chews over before you act, before you do anything, you think before you act, and you chew over. You don't just act on impulse or act instinctively. You think before, is this kosher or isn't this kosher? What's the purpose? What's, what's, my, what's my goal? You know, you, when your life has a theme, everything that you do has to fit with that theme, has to express that theme. So your life is unified. There's a unified theme. You're a novel. Your life is a novel. It has many, many, many details, but there's one theme that connects it all together. A Jew has a theme. Everything that I do is connected with that theme. There's one goal. So before you do something, you have to chew it over. Does this fit with the theme? It's not enough that it's kosher. Am I eating it with a higher intent? I'm eating it in order to gain strength, in order to be able to do the right thing. I'm not just eating because I'm hungry, so I'm eating without any thought to it. I have to <clears throat> inject a thought. There has to be a goal, a theme, a purpose, a higher purpose. So that's the nature of kosher. Kosher is you chew everything over before you do it. You think about it. You do it carefully, deliberately. Take your time. You deliberate. You make a blessing. You stop. You think. Nothing just happens automatically. Because it's your conscious. You inject your consciousness. Everything that you do, you inject your consciousness. When you inject your consciousness and you consciously connect with the higher authority, with Hashem, you are connecting this food and fulfilling its purpose by connecting it to Hashem, by changing the status of the food, releasing, redeeming the spark, releasing the spark, rearranging the letters. The original theme and message could radiate and could become clear once again. So it could emerge. So that's the nature of kosher that you chew. Everything is done deliberately. Nothing just is done just because, just so.
habit, instinct. It has to be a theme of purpose, everything that we do. And the name by which the creature is called in the holy tongue is a vessel full of life force condensed into the letters of that name, which has descended from ten utterances recorded in the Torah that have the power and vitality to create a being that can give it life forever. Why does it have the power to do so? For the Torah and the Holy One, blessed be He, are one. Just as God has the ability to create ex nihilo, so do the utterances of the Torah. Okay, so he's saying there's something very essential that. It's not just that the world is created through the Hebrew language, through the ten utterances, but they're created through the ten utterances as they are stated in the Torah. When the divine energy with which God creates the world, that divine energy is expressed two ways. It's expressed in the stone, but it's also expressed in the Hebrew letter, in the Hebrew word, Evan, the Hebrew name for stone. It's expressed in the actual ox. The divine energy creates the ox. But it's also expressed in the letter, sure, in the letters, the way it's found in the Torah. It's like it has many, many effects and many, many different levels. A voice, a voice, for example, a voice could be recorded on a tape, could be recorded on a record, could be digitalized. It's the same voice. But that same voice could be recorded in many different ways. Now, that voice is there. Anytime you play the record, anytime you put in the tape, you play the CD, the voice is there. Forever, it's there. It's etched into the record, into the, and it's there. You play it correctly, you'll hear the voice. So when God spoke these ten utterances, it's not that God spoke once in the past. God is constantly speaking. These ten utterances became etched into the Torah, for all eternity. This is the Torah. This became part of the Torah. And God said there should be light, and there should be light. These letters become part of the Torah. If one letter is missing in the Torah, the whole Torah is invalid. And these letters became etched into the stone and creates the stone and the axe and everything that exists around us. The sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, water, fire, everything that exists. But everything must originate in the Torah. Because God creates the world through the Torah. To the Jewish people, the Torah is not just a book of laws and commandments. It's not just a constitution. Every nation has a constitution, and we have a constitution. The Torah is revolutionary. The Torah that was given at Sinai, Sinai was a revolutionary event. It wasn't just that God gave us a set of rules and laws. Moses came down the mountain with Ten Commandments, with a set of rules and laws. Judaism is much deeper than just, much more profound. It's not just about a set of rules and laws. What the Jewish people experienced at Mount Sinai, at Revelation, radically transformed their whole perspective on reality. Their whole worldview, their Welt Anschwang, was totally changed and transformed. What they experienced at Sinai forever changed our whole approach to reality. All religions, all constitutions, all sets of rules and laws, begin with life. You have life, you have society, and then reasonable people, reasonable people come together and decide on a reasonable lifestyle. Whether they cho- choose theocracy or they choose uh, plutocracy or they choose uh, monarchy or they choose uh, democracy, 
whatever type of government they happen to choose. And they choose a system of laws and rules where people can live together and live in harmony. What comes first? First you have life. You have existence. Then comes man-made rules in order to organize this life, to organize this, like organize a system, a political system, a social system, a system where we can all live together and flourish to the best. And the best minds thought very long and hard, what's the best system of government that can generate the best good? The Torah, however, is completely different. The Torah, as the Zohar says, the Torah, the, as Midrash says, the Torah is the blueprint of reality. What comes first? The building or the blueprint? The blueprint. First, you make a blueprint. First, you have a, a design. The architect has a vision of what you want to build. And then you put it down on paper. You make a blueprint. And then you build. There's nothing in the building that's not in the blueprint. The building follows the blueprint. In other words, the Torah comes first. The Torah precedes creation. The Torah is God's vision of reality. God had a vision of reality. And in order to fulfill that vision, He created the world. Why does a person have 248 limbs in his body? Because there are 248 mitzvot. Because God wanted us to keep 248 mitzvot. That's why He created 248 limbs. Because God wanted us to give tzedakah, that's why He created a hand in order to do acts of goodness and kindness. You need a hand. Because there is tzedakah, God wants us to give tzedakah. That's why God created the whole world of finance, the world of Wall Street, money, markets, stock markets, bonds. The whole financial system was created in order to be able to fulfill the original vision, because God wanted there should be a concept of tzedakah. And therefore, He created a whole world, a whole financial market. It's not unlike the relationship of the body and the soul. It's not that the body exists, and the soul makes the body interesting. The soul gives it a little life, a little energy, a little electricity. The soul is the reality. The body is merely the symptom of the soul. It's the tip of the iceberg of the soul. Take, for example, the eye. The eye, which is so complex. Why is the eye formed or shaped the way it is? Evolution can't explain the eye. The eye exists in all its intricacies because the soul has an innate ability to see. Therefore, the body has an eye that's perfectly matched. Every part of the eye and all its intricacies perfectly matches the innate inner ability of the soul to see. In order for the soul to be able to express its ability to see, you have the eye, and the eye expresses the soul. Everything that exists, the physical, is merely a symptom of the spiritual. So the spiritual is primary precedes the body. The physical, the material, is merely an expression, a symptom of the spirit. What's true on a microcosm is also true on a macrocosm, on a global scale. Everything in the physical world exists only 
because it originates in the Torah. If it wouldn't originate in the Torah, it can never exist. It's not like reality exists, and Torah is a nice addition, a nice icing on the cake. Mount Sinai revolutionized the way a Jew looks at the world. It's just the opposite. It totally turned everything upside down. At Mount Sinai, they saw clearly. It was revealed to them. They saw it. They experienced it. That godliness, that's reality. Torah, that's reality, period. That is. Everything else in the physical world is merely a symptom. It's merely there in order to enable, to express the Torah. That's why you have the physical reality, a matching reality, a parallel reality. Nothing could exist in this world unless it originates in the Torah. Nothing. Everything that exists in the world has a Hebrew name, which is found in the opening of the Torah, in the ten utterances with which God creates the world. And these utterances are part of the Torah. It's part of the blueprint of reality. Because it has a purpose. Everything that exists has a purpose. Which is why a Jew looks at everything in this world and doesn't just look at facts. The the Torah teaches us, looks at everything on a deeper level. It illuminates for us something intangible, something that the scientist, that eludes the scientist. You can study a piece of ham under the, labor, under the microscope. You can study a piece of kosher meat. You can't tell the difference between one and the other. The scientist can't see that. But the Torah, the Jew is able to see. The Jew is able to go deeper and the Jew is able to see what's the purpose. What's the purpose of this kosher piece of meat and what's the purpose of the, of the piece of ham? The purpose of the piece of ham for the Jew is that you should avoid it. The purpose of this kosher piece of meat is that you should engage in it and elevate it. That was the Jew asked the question, everything that exists, every human experience, the Jew, the Torah illuminates for us. Is this kosher? Is this not kosher? Is this permitted? Is this not permitted? Is this obligated? Not obligated? What's its purpose? And sometimes you have a negative phenomenon and whose entire purpose is that it be totally obliterated, just as you have cancers in this world, whose purpose is that they should be totally obliterated. You don't just accept it as a fact of life. You look at its purpose. So a Jew looks at everything in this, li- everything in this world. He doesn't just accept it. Well, everyone is doing it, and therefore it's a fact of life, and we must accept it, we must live with it, we must compromise with it. A Jew looks a little deeper. A Jew looks at everything that exists, every human experience, and places a value judgment. What's its purpose? Is this positive? Is this neutral? Is this negative? Is this something that must be totally obliterated? Is this poisonous? Toxic? And none of these are things which you can see on the surface. They're not tangible, they're intangible. Because again, the way a Jew is coming from the Torah, the Jew is coming from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai revealed to us, we've, we, we all stood at Mount Sinai. We have experienced Mount Sinai. We all know everything has a purpose. 60,000 people getting killed in Thailand has a purpose. I mean, it's, there, it's, there, are, there are purposes, but this is, this, is, this, this is not even evil. This is, this, is, this, this is an unexplainable form of evil, in my opinion. Or maybe not. It's a uh, tragedy of the greatest magnitude. Um, a Jew doesn't minimize tragedies. Uh, on the contrary... Abraham argued with God and said, will the righteous judge not act rightly, uh, justly? Moses gives God an ultimatum. Um, when a Jew sees injustice or sees 
pain, it has to shake you to the core. If Avram was ready to fight for, ten, for, for, for the Sodomites, for Sodom, um, then surely when you see innocent people, it has to shake you to the core. Because in a perfect world, there is no pain and there is no death and there is no evil. And it should, it should rob you of your sleep and it should bother you and you should cry to God. On the other hand, this question, this question only comes from belief. If you don't believe, there's no question. It's nature and it's part of life and it just happened. There's nothing you can do. The reason why you're so shaken to the core, why it bothers you, human tragedy bothers you so deeply, is because you believe, because you know that nothing in the world is an accident. And you can't just blame, well, uh, it's just the work of nature. You know, nature is cold, nature is indifferent. You know, you, it's just a law of nature, nothing you can do. Um, it, it, it shakes you to the core because you believe. This question is, a, is only a question from a believer. Because you know that everything comes from God. Because that's where belief comes in. Ima- uh, using a, an analogy, imagine you walk into a palace, an exquisite palace, which has a thousand rooms. Every room, 999 rooms, are exquisitely ordered. And it's just so, it's so obvious that it was done with such marksmanship, and it was done with such design and thought. And then you walk into one room, and it's modern art. It's all chaos, confusion. You have no clue what's going on. But 999 rooms were perfectly ordered. What's the logical thing to say? The master of this house, who obviously has a mind that's not a million times greater than yours, a billion times greater than yours. Everything is so highly organized. Maybe this area of my life that I don't understand, maybe in some level, higher level, it has an understanding. There's a meaning. I don't know what it is. It'll lose me. I don't even know what 365 times 464 is, so I should understand life. Now, the more we study, the, the deeper we go into reality, the more we study modern physics, every item, every human being is made up of billions of atoms. Billions. And each atom has its own world. Each atom is a world for itself. Billions of atoms. And these atoms are so synchronized, are so exquisitely unified. The human organism is a miracle. A miracle, a walking miracle. Every time you breathe, every time you swallow, every time you do anything. It's just when you see and the deeper, the more you appreciate the complexities and you realize the exquisite unity of everything that exists in this world, it's so organized and so purposeful and, and everything fits in so harmoniously. And then there are areas in our life which don't make sense to us. You're not going to say, well, that means there's no creator and there's no God and there's no... There's no author, and there's no artist, and there's no just random events. No. The reason it troubles you is because you believe. Because you know, with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body, that nothing is accidental. It's not just accidental. Every person, every person has a story. Every person has an address. One person drowned, and one person was saved, miraculously. There was, uh, I remember that someday when it happened, there were uh, 700 Israelis or more, 
And someday they thought that 700 were lost. And 500 of them, I think, have been found. And you read some of the stories. It was, it was like miraculous. This one, this and that. and not, there's, there's no accident. You know, everything, every individual. But that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't satisfy, that doesn't mean that we're not, Shaken to the shaken to the bone, shaken to the core, because because we believe, because we know that everything comes from Hashem, and we know that everything in this world has a meaning, a purpose. Nothing in this world just happens arbitrary. Absolutely nothing. Not even every breath you take is is just a miracle, a constant miracle. Especially after what we just learned in this chapter, that God is creating the world each and every moment. So each and every event is being recreated. The whole world is recreated each and every moment. So nothing is just happens randomly. Everything is divine providence to the tiniest, most exquisite detail. So that's what's so troubling. 70, where's the number now? 70,000? It's over 60. And it's climbing. 60,000, people in five, five countries. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just boggles the mind. In one split second, suddenly it's a beautiful day, and suddenly in one split second, the worst tragedy in our generation on such a mass scale, 40 years, it, 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 actually the tremors were felt throughout the world. The, 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 the uh, monitors, seismographs, were, were felt around the world. It was, like, it was like God shook up the world. It was almost shaking to the core. So it, it's very troubling. You know, as long as we're in exile, as long as the world, the world is off balance, there's something wrong with the world. There's no question there's something wrong with the world. The world is off balance. Our behavior is off balance. We know from our own personal lives that maybe is our life in balance? Maybe it's a time to do a little soul search. Maybe a, a good response in addition to jumping in and helping out the best that you can. I know teams have flown out and Israel has volunteered to help. But on a, on, a, on a personal level, if we're shaken to the core, it's a time to do a little soul search. Maybe this should shake us a little to the core. Maybe if my life was together, because we Jews really believe that. That we are a reflection of the whole world. We are a microcosm of the whole world. Whatever happens, any change for the good in our own personal hearts, in our own personal lives, affects and impacts on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on the macrocosm, on the global scale. So maybe it's a wake-up call for me. I should shake myself to the core. Is my life together? Maybe the more my life will be focused and centered and connected and, and growing and doing the right thing, Overcoming my inner conflicts, that will cause the whole world to be, to, be, to be more peaceful. A Jew takes it very to heart. A Jew takes every tragedy, we take it to heart. It's like a, it's like a pain. It's a reminder of how out of balance the world is, how, how things, are, things are not right. And we cry to Hashem, and it pains us, and it, it troubles us, and we pray to Hashem that no tragedy should happen. But it, it's, it's because we have faith. Because we believe that nothing is by accident. And that's why it's so, it's so painful and it's so troubling. A person who has no faith, what, what's there to be troubled in? It's just an accident of nature, a freak accident, nothing you can do. Without question, but you, you will eloquently argue that um, Wall Street was created for one to get stock up. This was uh, this and that. I mean, I mean, is there no rationale one could conjure up besides maybe an inner soul searching? I mean, 60,000 lives is a, maybe... From where I'm sitting, it's a very heavy price to pay. I don't know. I, I, 
I mean, I just look at the pictures. I read a story about you know, a boy who saw his mother, his brother, his sisters, his aunts, his uncles. Everybody died all around him, a six-year-old, and he survived because the tree he was on didn't collapse with this. So he, he saw everybody die, and now he's a six-year-old living alone, and it's surrounded by corpses. I mean... You know, there's a famous midrash. This week we're reading about Moshe. There's a famous midrash how Moshe asked God the classical question, how could the righteous people suffer? And Hashem showed him all future generations. Hashem showed him a whole story how how uh, someone was asleep and uh, someone goes and steals his wallet and he wakes up and he accuses someone of stealing his wallet and it was the wrong person and he goes and shoots him. And Moshe is even more confused. He says, you know, an innocent person lost his money, another innocent person was killed. And it turns out, I forget all the details, it turns out Hashem showed him, well, let me show you prior to that going back, that this person who was killed, actually, uh, what happened was that the person who found the money, was his, his money was stolen by the person who had the wallet and, and the one who was killed because he murdered. It was a whole story how on some higher level, if you knew the whole picture, everything, everything would make sense. We know very little. And we know even less than that. <laughs> we, don't see, we can't see the picture. But, but it's not something that we dismiss lightly and say, well, we believe in God. God is, sees the big picture. Everything makes sense. It's wonderful. Mazel tov. No. Because the fact that we don't see the big picture is also divine providence. God created as a human. The fact that on the human level, all we see is tragedy. And we see a huge tragedy. Just a, a tragedy that just tugs at your heart. There's a message in that too. God wants us to argue with Him. He wants us to fight. He wants us to pray. He wants us not to be complacent. Not to say, well, faith and hide behind faith. God wants you to to change the terrible decree. A Jew is not fatalist. We don't just accept it. Well, it's the will of God. What can we do? No, we're not resigned. A Jew has to has to be a wake-up call. Whenever there's a tragedy, there's a bitter tragedy, there's tragedy that just numbs the senses. A Jew just intensifies and, and, and just uh, tries to do some soul-searching, tries to change, tries... It shakes you to the core because you know something is wrong. Something is not right. Because in the perfect world, there shouldn't be any tragedies. When God created the world, the world was a Garden of Eden. That's its natural state. The status quo is like the picture upside down. It's distorted. The whole world is distorted. The whole world is upside down. And we know it from our own personal lives. Is our life... Is our own picture... Straight, our own picture is upside down, or crooked, or distorted, or unfocused, unclear. Is our life focused? I mean, this was a wake-up call. I mean, this really should shake everyone to the core. You know, I, we don't understand it, but it seems suffering is part of this existence for some reason that maybe we don't understand. I don't know if that's to bring us, to help transform us to Mashiach. It just seems it's a fact of, of, of this existence. But we should never accept it. We should never make peace with it. While the Jew has faith that it's, it's part of the process and it's part of the birthing pangs and it's part of the growing pains and whatever positive thing that comes out of suffering, a Jew could, is never allowed to make peace with suffering. That's why we pray. That's the mitzvah of prayer. You don't accept tragedy and pain and suffering and welcome it and accept it. A Jew has to pray that I don't want any suffering. I want things to be good, overtly good. 
tangibly good. Not just the end should be good. The means, how we get there, should also be good. Whatever God wanted to do, God wanted to shake up the world. And he did. He shook up the whole world to its core. Maybe God could have done it in a positive way. How? You're God. Figure it out. I know. We can't be complacent. So a Jew can never be complacent. That's why a Jew can never make peace with the exile. This is a symptom of the exile. Suffering is a symptom of the exile. It's not good. There's something wrong. Because since God is absolute, the world should be absolutely good. Without death, without shadow, without evil, without suffering. And as long as there's suffering and there's evil and there's death and there's tragedy, it means we're still in exile. It means the world is still upside down. The world is still distorted. The letters are still scrambled. It's not transparent. You don't see the connection. The world is, is unfocused. Mashiach hasn't come yet. And a Jew can never be complacent about that. A Jew can never make peace with that. It's just another reminder, if we needed another reminder, that the status quo is simply intolerable. We cannot live with the status quo. That's what exile, for a Jew, exile is unbearable. With all the understanding of the positives of exile, all the understanding of the purpose of exile, but a moment of exile is a moment unbearable. And with each moment of exile, it gets even more unbearable. It's not that the exile is passive. Oh, we've been in exile for 2,000 years. Oh, we'll be another year in exile. We'll be another moment, another day in exile. It's not passive. Exile is dynamic. Each passing day that Mashiach does not come, the exile deepens. Life is full of surprises. Life doesn't stand still. We think, we think that we've seen it all. We've seen the worst. Every day brings a new shock. A new shock. Who would believe that Jews would exile themselves from the land of Israel? Shocking. What happened this week was shocking. It shook the world to its core. Every moment that the exile continues is a tragedy that deepens. It's like a fresh wound. The Talmud says that any Jew whose temple was not built in his day and age, it's as if the temple was destroyed in your day and age. In other words, when we pray for Mashiach, and we've been praying for 2,000 years, it's not just that God is saying, no, I'm not ready, or you're not ready. Every moment Mashiach doesn't come, God is destroying the temple. It's a fresh destruction. It's a, it's a deepening of the exile. It's a fresh, unpredictable, a new level of destruction. A new level of, of mayhem. It's not passive. Every moment Mashiach doesn't come, the Talmud says, every day it gets worse. Until you yearn for the previous day. You thought he had sadness yesterday. Halabai that sadness. Because every day you have a new, a new uh, you turn a new leaf. Because either Mashiach is going to come, and if Mashiach doesn't come, if that potential is not realized, because every day we're moving forward, if that deep potential, new potential, positive potential is not realized, it turns destructive. So a Jew can never make peace with exile. A Jew can never say, make peace, and say, you know, it's part of life. We have to accept it. We have to... A Jew cries for Mashiach. Because we know Mashiach will come. There, will no, won't be any pain. there won't be any pain when Mashiach comes. There won't be any illness when Mashiach comes. There won't be any death when Mashiach comes. There won't be any shadow. There won't be any evil. And until that moment comes, we can't be at peace. We can't be at rest. So there really is no peaceful acceptance. No, of absolutely not. No resignation. No.
Absolutely not. There's no resignation. You can't go crazy if something occurs. And, no, you know. But it's, it should spur you. It should shake you to the core. It should spur you to do whatever you can to bring an end to the exile. Because when Mashiach comes, this would never happen. This could never happen. So the fact that it's still happening on such a scale, on such a magnitude, on such a tragedy, is just another reminder, if we need a reminder, that the status quo is unbearable. There are many Jews who are too complacent. I'm talking about even religious Jews. Mashiach will come whenever God will decide in his infinite wisdom, God will choose to bring Mashiach. Who am I to tell God what to do? I'm going to tell God we need Mashiach now. There's something wrong with that attitude. This tragedy is another reminder we needed another reminder. The status quo is unbearable. Just in this week's Torah portion, it's only when the Jewish people groaned, when they couldn't take it anymore. That's when God heard their voice. That's when the redemption happened. Until, as long as the Jews were complacent, they were doing the right, they were complacent, there was no change. The moment the Jew just groaned and the Jew just cried out to Hashem and said, enough, we can't take another moment in exile. It's unbearable, it's intolerable. The status quo is simply unacceptable. The moment it was heartfelt and the Jew meant it and it was sincere, God responded in a split second. And the whole process of redemption began. So there's a message. Everything is divine providence. Not only is the pain divine providence, but it's divine providence that we feel the pain. The pain is a signal that something is wrong. Something is wrong with this picture. The world is out of kilt. The world is off balance. The world is unfocused. I am unfocused. Because in a focused world, in a perfect world, in a Mashiach world, this could never happen. We can't rest. And we can't make peace. We can't resign and just accept it with a higher wisdom. We need things to be tangibly good. We need Hashem to be overt. We need to unscramble the letters, the encryption, decode the message, reveal the divine energy in the world, reveal the divine author, the divine artist, the divine master builder, reveal the Torah, the blueprint, through the Torah, by living a life of Torah, by studying the Torah, you reveal the master blueprint, you reveal the purpose, the inner purpose, you reveal the truth, that Torah precedes reality, and therefore the Torah changes reality, because the Torah precedes reality, reality is just a reflection of the Torah, everything originates in the Torah, the Torah illuminates all of reality. It gives, it very, gives us clarity. This is good. This is evil. This is neutral. This is toxic. This is amalek. This must be destroyed. This must be avoided. This could be elevated. This is kosher. This is a mitzvah, an obligation, a must. The Torah gives us the inner, the intangible. Something that the scientists could never, ever, ever see. And the Torah changes reality. If you want to change reality by studying Torah, mastering a concept in the Torah, you become a master of reality. You can change reality for good. So if this shakes us, if these events shake us to the core, we study Torah a little, a little, more, a little deeper. We do a little more mitzvah, a little more acts of goodness and kindness, and we, we try to bring our life into focus, a little more into focus, and center our own lives, and that will lead to... Uh, to a more focused centered world machine of the world.
there's death and hunger and floods and uh, war and pestilence. You know, it's it's a mystery. I, I don't think there's anyone who can give an explanation to what happened. It's 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 a, it's a troubling mystery. Moses was troubled by it. Abraham was troubled by it. Every prophet was troubled by injustice, by by evil, by 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 things that we don't by tragedy. Uh, why do the righteous people suffer? Um, why, why do innocent people suffer? And we, we, the previous Lubavitcher everyone said, in not understanding, we're very rich. We're, we're billionaires. And what we don't know, what we don't understand, we're extremely, extremely rich. There's, it's so, a blessing, not understanding. there's so much we don't understand that, you know, it's, it's... So you have to realize that, you know, a child... A child doesn't see the bigger picture. So to the child, the doctor is, is enemy number one. You know, you bring a child to the doctor, the doctor is, gonna, is going to give you a painful needle. When the child grows up and the child sees the bigger picture, the child brings himself to the... The child, now adult, brings himself to the doctor. I mean, when you see the bigger picture, you have a whole different understanding. There were three rabbis, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, and two of his colleagues were once having a discussion. What would they do if they were God? So one Hasidic master said, if I were God, I would close down all the hospitals. I think it was Rabbi Levi Tzokbar Another Hasidic rabbi said, if I were God, I would make every Jew wealthy. And Alter Rebbe said, if I were God, I would do exactly what God is doing. (laughs) 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 Right. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, if if you were God, you would see what God, you know, you'd know. As, As the prime minister says, when I sit over here, I see things totally differently. Of course, that's all nonsense, but in God's case, if you were God, you would see what God sees. You would see a whole different picture. So, you know, we, that's faith. Faith means you know that there's a higher picture. You know that everything is so exquisite. Everything is divine providence. Nothing just happens random. That that child got stuck to a tree. I mean, it's, all, it's not arbitrary. It's everything down to the minutest detail. It's so divine providence. You read of all the miracles of the people who were saved and how they were saved. It's just, it's just mind-boggling. You know, just one tiniest thing and the person could have been lost and it's almost like every person had an address every individual it wasn't like 70,000 it's 70,000 individuals and every one of them had like God says I'm taking you and I'm taking you and I'm taking you and I'm saving you and I'm saving you I mean it's just mind boggling but do we understand it are we not shaken to the our core <clears throat> are we not disturbed Faith doesn't mean you're not disturbed. You're disturbed, and that's why you pray, and that's why you, you, you're upset, and that's why you pray that you want things to be tangibly good. And you know that it's part of, it's a symptom of what's wrong with the world. It's not a symptom of what's right with the world. But we have the power to correct it. We have the power to correct it, because the whole world is in our hearts. We are a microcosm. Maimonides says a Jew is obligated to always view himself and the whole world as being on an equal scale. By doing one positive mitzvah, you can single-handedly tip the scale and bring Mashiach. Could you imagine? It's an awesome responsibility and privilege. <laughs> because maybe the 70,000 is my fault. Because maybe if I would have pushed myself and my life would have been a little more in focus and I would have pushed myself to do that extra mitzvah and I would have pushed myself to give that extra penny to Zadok and I would have pushed myself to be a little better, maybe Mashiach would have come. And it would never have happened. Don't do what you do. How do we pull? We have to push a lot more. I'm the problem, because I'm not doing that extra mitzvah. <laughs> obviously, Mashiach didn't come here, so obviously I'm not doing what I have to do. Because every, it's everyone on their own level. Everyone has to go that extra mile. Everyone has to push themselves a little beyond their nature. 
On the contrary, the person who's so-called religious is sometimes has a bigger problem because he's complacent. He says, I'm doing my part. And maybe the Jew in Iowa yesterday did zero mitzvah is pushing himself to do that one mitzvah. That one mitzvah is, is pushing himself and that one mitzvah could bring Mashiach while the observant Jew maybe is sliding or stagnating. It's just going through, going through the motion. So this is not external. It's not superficial. This is very genuine. So if you're disturbed and you're shaken to the core, it leads you to do something. It doesn't lead you to go to sleep. It leads you, it, it activates you. It leads you to take an activist approach. What am I going to do? So I'm going to do whatever I can to do that extra good deed to bring Mashiach so none of these tragedies, all these tragedies will come to an end. That 8,000 Jews won't be kicked out of their homes. They won't be bombarded with 5,000 custom rockets to date. That this tragedy will never ever happen again. This will be the last tragedy in the world. I mean, this, we can do something. It's not to sit passively, God, why did you do it? I'm not coming to Shor Shabbos. I mean, that's, that's, a chi- that's a childish approach. On the contrary. How can this happen? I better come to Shor I better get my act together. What am, what am I doing? I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping on the job. I'm at the switch. I'm at the control center, and I'm asleep. And that's why 70,000 people lost their life, because I'm asleep. Now, that's, that's, that's reality. That's, that's reality. Now, now you're talking. Now you're taking it seriously. Now you're taking God seriously. You're taking what happened seriously. It's moving you. Everybody thought the weight of the world was on their shoulders. The world was in a far better place. Oh, now we're talking. Now we're communicating. Mm. That's, that's, that's the whole Jewish message. That's the whole Lubavitch message. That's, that was the Rebbe's message. The whole message of the Shluchim to every Jew living in their community is the whole world is, depends on you. That's God's message. The whole world depends on you. It's on your shoulders. Lighter Shabbos camp. Put on that fill. Give an extra penny to Tzedakah. Study an extra minute of Torah. Push yourself. Whatever level you're at, push yourself a little, a drop, a baby step forward. And you can single-handedly transform human consciousness. You can clinch the deal. You can lead us into, the, into that critical mass, into that messianic era. You can do it. You can bring your life into focus in one split second. You can create that atomic reaction. You can create a tsunami, a positive tsunami. That will shake the world to its core positively. And save 70,000 people. Because the power of positive is so much, more stro- so much stronger than the power of negative. By creating an earthquake inside of you, creating an atomic explosion inside of you, making a quantum leap, acting in ways that are unpredictable, surprise yourself. Discover something new inside of you. Just surprise yourself. Do something unusual, something above your habit. Push yourself. Jump out of your skin a little. After such a tragedy, jump out of your skin a little. Wake up a little. If this doesn't wake us up, what will? Then, if you take it to heart and you create an internal tsunami, then you, then you can create waves that can affect the whole world. Positive waves. <clears throat> you come into focus, the whole world comes into focus. Unscramble the letters, and Mashiach comes. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.